0: Okay, hello, my name is Oliver Garfield. I'm the CEO of Cosbar. And what I love most about beauty is just the tight-knit nature of the industry. It's really a, a wonderful collection of smart and committed and passionate good people.
1: From New York City, You're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Beauty is Your Business. I am your host, Jessica Quick, and today I am buzzing about Beauty Elevated. If you know that, then you know my guest is going to be Oliver Garfield from Cosbar. Welcome, Oliver.
0: Thank you, Jessica. Thrilled to be here.
1: We're so thrilled to have you. I have been looking forward to this conversation. I think Cosbar has really set the standard for what a beauty retail space looked like when it started almost, what, 50 years ago, but also how it's evolved and so I feel like our conversation today is going to be very rich. And I actually want to jump in and start there. Can you talk to us a little bit about the origin story of Cosbar? Because I don't think most people realize that it has been around as long as it has. So we talked talk to us a little bit about the beginning?
0: I'd love to. So close with the 50 years, Cosbar was started in 1976. So we will have our 50-year anniversary, gosh, in three years. So 47 years. And my mom is the founder, and she's got a wonderful story in terms of how she kind of broke into the industry in the 70s, as well as, you know, how she had this kind of vision for Cosbar and started it in Aspen, Colorado way back then. So I'll, I'll try to be broad enough with it, but concise enough because there's, there's a lot of cool details. My mom's originally from New York. She's from Queens, Forest Hills. And she tells a great story about how she got into beauty at Bloomingdale's 59th Street and how 59th Street back in the early 70s was just like the place for beauty. It was whatever modern day equivalent you'd want to say of like what Barney's was and Bergdorf's and just all the great places all rolled into one. It was just like the place. As she would say, it's a cattle call to kind of get that job. And she got it. And then she quickly turned into one of the best salespeople on the floor and then went over to the vendor side with a brand called Love Cosmetics, which I have never seen in my life, but I guess at that time was on the forefront. And what blows my mind actually is that she was the first female account executive for that beauty brand in New York. And it makes me think of that mad men kind of world. But you know now it's almost entirely women that comprise the field teams that, that take care of everything in beauty. But then not too long thereafter, I think she had this calling to kind of go west, drop out of New York and move to Aspen with $5,000 and a pair of skis and was a cocktail waitress ski bum. She's got some great stories from Aspen in the early 70s. But she had this entrepreneurial bug and saw this opportunity to open up a store in Aspen primarily driven because she would say you know, a lot of her girlfriends, anyone that went to Denver and was going to the department stores, they gave each other their list. And then whoever went to Denver had to get everyone's kind of beauty products. And she's like, I should just start this in Aspen. And Aspen and Cosbar was born. I think Aspen is so much part of kind of the heritage of the business as well as who we are today. We are a luxury store and you you could say Aspen and places like Aspen have almost gone hyper luxury over the past five years very different than what it was in the 70s and and 80s and perhaps even, you know, 90s. But she's a skincare junkie and skincare and the brands and, and I think the loyalty that you have in skincare and if you can gain someone's trust in skincare, just goes a very long way to building the relationship. But she stayed ultra true to luxury. She never deviated and always kind of appealed to that client that just wanted the best of the best.
1: So then how did you get involved? At what point did you decide that you wanted to jump into the CauseBar team?
0: So, I mean, being born and raised in the business, one, I think it's a crime that my mom didn't have a daughter. She had two sons, but my brother didn't go into the business. But you know, when I was a kid, I used to go into the store. I'd help gift wrap. I'd help cashier. I remember receiving inventory with the old inventory control books, kind of almost like pre-POS, stickering things. So I've always kind of been around the business. And then in college, I actually had the wonderful opportunity of two internships at Estee Lauder. And then after college, I worked at Bloomingdale's 59th Street, you know, full circle, but I was in their training program on the store side, always with this kind of idea, yes, to go into the family business, because I did think my mom really had something special. And just with the ecosystem of distribution in beauty, where she sat just had kind of unique white space, and clearly things have evolved significantly since she started the business. You know, she was a very early pioneer, maybe the pioneer of kind of the independent small format multi brand beauty because it was only department stores, right? This is pre Sephora, pre Ulta, anything that you kind of see in that specialty channel. But I joined her in 2005, not too long after my time at Bloomingdale's, and she had six stores at the time, and been part of the business ever since.
1: All in Colorado at that point? Or had she already started to expand into some of these other premium locations?
0: Great question, Jessica. My mom's real estate strategy, she didn't want to open up a store unless it was a place that she wanted to go visit. So that would be Aspen, Vail, Santa Fe, Maui, the bedroom community outside of Vail, and then Carmel. I think those were the first six stores.
1: Okay, so you joined the business, you've got six stores under your belt, you're coming in. How do you take what you've seen kind of in New York in this bigger environment, Estee Lauder, Bloomingdale's, you've got these really big companies that you've now been a part of. How and what did you see and how did you start to influence Cosbar? Or did you decide, look, the training was enough, there's so much with Cosbar that I want to jump off with. How did you pivot into that independent type of specialty chain? function?
0: Good question. I think there's kind of two answers there. One in terms of, say, a more young startup, entrepreneurial type business that needs to, you know, I don't like this word, but say grow up a little bit and start putting in processes and infrastructure. I think that's one side of the answer. And then the other side is, to your point, what did I learn at Bloomingdale's and other kind of outside things? And so I'll answer the second one first. I didn't have a ton of experience before going to work with my mom, quite frankly, right? Like a couple of years in New York, I don't think equates to bringing real value in terms of kind of having done there, been that, or been there and done that. You know, I would say one thing I did learn very well from Bloomingdale's and their training program, and I wasn't on the merchant side, I was on the store side. So I was in 59th Street and learned so much about service and customer service. And what that means and sales associates in the stores and their kind of realities and, and helping and supporting them were very important things that i kind of brought with me. And then, you know, on the business side, learned from my mom, but I'd say also kind of learned a ton from just being curious and trying to talk to people smarter than me and more experienced than me, be it books or actual conversations, right? And kind of slowly learned and iterated over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the true entrepreneurial journey, right? Is that you realize what you don't know and then you go find the experts and the strong employees that are gonna help you get to that next level. So fast forward today to Cosbar, what I think is so fascinating about this company is the fact that you started Bricks and Mortar and you've actually pivoted to be omni-channel. And most brands or most people that we have, it's the other way, right? So I would love to hear a little bit about this process for you, going from bricks and mortar and moving into omnichannel, how have you done that? How have you thought about that? I think it's a very interesting point of differentiation.
0: Well, if I could, real quick, I mean, I love the question because brick and mortar is back in vogue. You know, if we were talking back in 2019, I think the chatter was, oh my gosh, D to C, e com's going to take over the world. And it's just a matter of time, you kind of brick and mortar folks until you're, you're out of the business. And my God has that pendulum kind of swung back. You can't be a brand without a wholesale strategy and overwhelming lion's share of, of the beauty business is done through third-party multi-brand retailers, be it specialty or department store. To answer your question directly, our heritage, we're brick and mortar. I think everything that we truly do well that differentiates us in the market is really what we do in the store building that omni channel muscle definitely takes time and learning we made significant investments into omni channel back in 1617 you know and I still think even at that time like no one really knows what is the right thing to do until you get through it and then you have the benefit of hindsight right so affiliates were getting really big you know trying to figure out omni-channel fulfillment. And do you go full 3PL or third party, or you have this hybrid where you can do store plus warehouse, and then proximity, ship time, shipping costs, all those things. I mean, we were in the throes of that, I think, with everyone else. The fact that we came from brick and mortar is today an advantage because it's not easy to do. And I think omni-channel activities can be very enticing and appealing and feels like there's unlimited upside. And the brick and mortar stuff, I actually think is harder, not from a knowing what to do, but from an execution standpoint. Someone else's expression, retail is details and kind of being obsessed about those details all the time, everywhere, because it's unforgiving, right? I think there's a great Stanley Marcus quote, one of the early Neiman Marcus family members that basically said, for every one bad customer experience, you kind of undo 19 which I think is true. It's really unforgiving. So I think that's been that's been an advantage for us. But I'd also say you can't be brick and mortar only these days either. You have to be omni-channel, but what that looks like, I think is actually more company specific.
1: That makes absolute sense. So when you start to talk to a brand and you're interested in, you've done homework, or they've even approached you, and you're thinking about adding them into the Cause Bar portfolio. How do some of those early conversations start with the expectation is that they will be brick and mortar and on D2C platforms with you? How do you start those conversations? And are you getting a lot of brands that are now in 2023, like, yes, no problem? Or are they still a little bit hesitant to be online and that type of situation?
0: Well, so many great things within that question. I love your questions today. To answer that one directly, I mean, it has to be omnichannel. And our expectation is that they are omnichannel too. But I think we could kind of tease apart what's important and what's not. But yeah, I would say kind of table stakes on our side. We're not going to launch a brand unless they're omnichannel with us. And our just expectation is that the brand has their own DTC.
1: What is that expectation from Cosbar to the brand? So you say, okay, we'd love to partner with you. What are some of the things that brand needs to have or should have already in place by the time they're even talking to your team?
0: Is the question specific to digital or full omni-channel?
1: Full omni-channel.
0: Okay. So I think what a lot of young brands are not kind of fully aware about is what it takes to be successful in wholesale relative to the investment that they need to make to, as I like to say, kind of win over the hearts and minds of our store teams. So I think there's many brand founders that they've just poured their heart and soul into creating a product, their depth of knowledge on ingredients, on packaging, on just everything it took to kind of get this finished product. And then they kind of think they're at the end. And from my perspective, I would tell you they are actually at the beginning. They're on like the 20-yard line waiting to go down, use the football analogy, to go drive, drive the field. And, and what that means is at least specific to Cosbar. right? Every retailer is going to kind of have their different needs and cost structures and you know what department stores require versus what like a, say, Sephora, Ulta, or Blue Mercury might require, which is very different. But for us, because we're multi-branded, not just obviously from an assortment standpoint, but in terms of our selling approach and our folks in store are trained across all brands. And I think they're truly the heroes of Cosbar, them and our store managers and all our store managers are selling managers because they are incredible experts and probably the biggest product junkies out there. And if you're a brand that wants to capture their mind share and convince them, that your product is worth selling above everything else in our store, that only comes with meaningful training. And what does meaningful training look like? It's not just a one and done, and it's not just a warm body that goes in and tries to share some selling sound bites. I actually think some of the most talented people in our industry are trainers and people that have been in those training roles forever, just their ability to communicate complex things related to a brand's heritage, to their own product development, be it science in a very kind of authentic and educational way, while also being charming beyond belief. I mean it's it's amazing just like the magnetism of so many of these trainers. It's pumping up our store teams, right? And giving them some information that they don't have that they know makes that brand unique. That's like ah not only do I want to sell this, I want to try it and use it because I'm so excited about what I just learned. And then it's repetition of getting that again and again and again. I think that's an absolute huge strategy and expense that a lot, of, a lot of young brands don't think about. And then we could go down this rabbit hole of, well, that costs a lot of money, right? If you want your own field team and your own W-2 and you want to cover the United States, that costs an incredible amount of money some of the best trainings that I've ever seen done are by founders. Brand founders that know and are excited to kind of get into the weeds and the trenches and be there with the customer and be there in the wholesale selling environment are the ones that do break through.
1: What I also think is so important about that statement and the thought about founders actually going back into this training role is also because you're on the ground, your feet are in the street, you're hearing directly. So when they're in the midst of doing a training or speaking with a store staff, they're hearing directly the feedback, they're seeing it for themselves. In my experience, many of the times your store teams are going to also have the most information about the customers. And that isn't something, sure, we have ERP systems, and you can put customer data in them, but it is not the same as somebody who has spent significant time with a customer. And to get that brand feedback As a founder, it's so valuable. And I think it's a novel idea because it is what we used to do, right? As founders, you'd run in and you would do the training, but then you get so busy and so many other things, you hire trainers to do it. And this idea of almost going back to that, even fitting it into your schedule where you could so, that you can relay that real knowledge of the brand, the tenants, and then hear the customer feedback and what they're saying. So, you know how to take your brand forward and either pivot some things, adjust some things, even just simple marketing copy. If you're hearing something about the brand that you can adjust, I really like that, Oliver. I think it's an, an interesting thought about having founders come back in and really be part of that training process with the brands that you're looking at or thinking about for Cosbar. Are you sitting down as a team and you have kind of a scorecard? I know I see you out and about a lot and you're usually attending really amazing beauty events, looking at brands, but how do you go about that selection process for thinking about bringing on a new brand into Cosbar?
0: My gosh, it's funny. I was just on a panel with Muffy from Ulta and you know, I was chatting with her you know, about this. I'm probably going to get this wrong. I want to say Ulta you know, looks at, I don't know, 500 brands and maybe they go forward with 20 or 30. You know, on the Cosbar side, I feel like we probably look at 50 brands and bring in one, not because we don't love them and that they have a right to kind of be in the marketplace. But to your question about kind of a scorecard to kind of pass that quote unquote scorecard takes a lot. Now, going with this metaphor of a scorecard, we don't have a scorecard because it's more of a combination of variables, right? If you kind of think about it as like dials, there could be some combination of those dials that are right for us. And it's never a one size fits all. And very infrequently what I even say, I even see duplication in terms of that combination of what a brand might be doing. But to kind of tease that apart a little bit for it to be useful for the audience, if there's a brand that is just hot on social, editorial, getting a lot of energy and building brand awareness and demand. Well, yes, those we all love because much of the difficult work has been done, right? If a customer walks in, hey, I've seen this. Do you have it? My gosh, we love that. Nothing is better than that. But now if you're a brand that has not a lot of brand awareness, but we truly love the product, we think it has a point of differentiation to our current assortment. We think that that Product is going to be incremental to our business. And I guess I'd pause there for a second because the last thing that we want to do as a retailer is bring in more merchandise that we're just kind of moving existing business because basic retail economics, you know, we care above and beyond almost most things is about turn and inventory turn. So if we double our inventory and do the same amount of business, we're in trouble. That's the majority of our working capital. So that's how we're evaluating it. But again, for a brand that doesn't have that brand awareness, then it would go back to what we were just talking about. How are you going to win over kind of the hearts and minds of our store teams to get you to want to sell it while you're also doing the right activations in a digital capacity or other omni-channel activities that are building brand awareness in the market to get customers familiar and, and want to purchase
1: so a brand gets into Cosbar, they get on shelf. What are some of the best practices that you have, some of the strategies you've seen that help that brand get off the shelf? How do they get that inventory turn inside Cosbar? specific to your environment? What are you seeing work well to get started? Even if you have brand awareness and so forth, obviously we all love when a customer walks in and says, do you have this? And, you know, take it right there. But But are there certain things brands are doing to help them in those early days of getting on shelf, how they can help their inventory turn?
0: Well, I won't beat the uh, training uh, horse to death (laughs) here, but I would say training, but then related to that also sampling, you know, sampling is very important. And I think sampling has gotten a bad reputation because of how in our industry, oftentimes it's kind of turned into trick-or-treating, right? Of like, hey, buy this and let me give you kind of like a grab bag of samples and if that's the way that samples are being used as a brand i would be very upset samples are real selling tools and when they're used as selling tools they're effective and they're worthwhile and therefore we probably don't need as many samples as there are in the industry called from a sustainability perspective because that is truly a thing but then it's pairing that education with the sample so hey if i'm going in and I've invested into these deluxe samples or these packets, in that training, I'm going to really focus on that and teach the store teams about how to use that sample. Here's customer what you can expect from this one packet, right? If the real benefits aren't going to be seen for 28 days, well, you should see this after this many applications and give you a good sense of the brand. So I think being holistic in the approach of all these different Things that are needed is important. And then I'll move past training, and that's events. So, you know, events in store, I'd say, are probably the most important thing that a brand can be doing. And even better if a brand, say, could partner with a local influencer and kind of create an activation in the store and really looking for brands that don't view wholesale as just like a checkbox where they're going to put most of their marketing activities into driving their D2C. right? Like It's really that partnership with a brand that I think views almost wholesale as the priority over their D2C. And we could go down that rabbit hole in terms of when brands start getting promotional on their website. And if they're promotional and we don't have the promo, last thing we want to be doing is competing with a brand. So I think they have to be very purposeful in terms of their promotional strategy, that they don't compete with us because we don't want to compete with them. And we're a full price retailer, right? Other than our two friends and family events, which as long as I'm CEO, I don't think we'll ever expand that because we do have a full price customer. And you could say one of the beautiful parts of beauty for a long time is it never went on on sale. And I think that's just kind of how it works.
1: Well, and I think that it goes back to that strategy that we started the conversation around and the fact that Cosbar has been set up and been successful in a space designed around a certain customer. You're very clear on the vision of who your customer is, where they live, where they shop and what brands they're looking for. And so when you have that type of vision, then it absolutely makes sense that you stay to the strategy. So as a brand coming into the store, then it's about what type of customer is this retailer attracting? How do I get in front of that customer, which is why I'm interested in being in Cosbar. And from there, then it's, okay, they're not going to be, this is not a discount piece. This isn't a promotional heavy way of getting traffic and sales. And so that I think as a brand is very interesting to think about as you think about your wholesale strategy and different retailers that you may be in or may not be in, what does that look like in total? Because you can't be heavily promoted over here with this retailer and then want to be in a retailer where you're not going to have that. So a lot of this has to be done. I think you said it earlier when we were talking about training, but about the foundation work and brand awareness and how that hard work has to be done. The strategy of the brand also has to be done early on. And that's hard to then decide what retailer really is the right fit. I would guess if you're a good fit for Cosbar, your strategy isn't going to be a heavily promoted D2C website in my expectation.
0: <laughs> Correct. But we're okay with that too. Again, if they're building demand. But if their strategy is to funnel all of their marketing activities to their own website, that's different, right? And that's nuanced. And that's why it's not a a black and white answer. I would also say, I think just if I could real quick on the full price model, I think that existed in beauty. From a retailer perspective, it's only made possible, right? When brands are prepared and have kind of set up their business model for RTVs from the retailer, right? So if there's assortment creep or there's a launch that just didn't have success, right? We want to be able to RTV that with with a brand. The last thing we want to do is put it on discount to try to sell through it. Because we're not a discounting retailer. We're not good at markdowns. We'd much rather say, hey, take this back. We'll do a stock swap, give us a credit. And that'll be for future orders that we can then put into part of the assortment that is moving. But that only works... If the brand has kind of set up their own margin to be able to take those returns, because that's the only lever that retailers really have at the end of the day to sell through is discounts, right? And that's why on the fashion side, yeah, you started whatever 100% and then you go into your traditional markdown cadence that doesn't exist in beauty purely because it was set up. And if you go back to all the strategics, I won't name names, but they all do this because they recognize that maintaining that full price is important for the long term but it only works if they're willing and able to RTV product that doesn't sell.
1: And I think it's a really interesting point as well about knowing all the pieces that go into the contract, whether it's RTV, whether it's ad dollars that need to be spent or samples that need to be used, training hours, thinking about the whole cost of being inside the retailer It's, I think, something in my experience where, as a brand, we get tripped up because we haven't actually put pencil to paper to realize, okay, here's really the value and what I need to have ready to go and ready to bring back or to expense, whether it be samples that I'm sending out or whether it be product I'm bringing back, to think about that full circle nature of the relationship Are those conversations, when you start talking with a brand, are you jumping into those conversations early on? Are you seeing it a little bit as, look, let's romance a little bit. Let's really understand the potential and opportunity we have. And then we start really diving into some of these more detailed contractual pieces, or I'm sure it's probably brand dependent.
0: I mean, look, the first hurdle for us is, I think, falling in love with the brand and the product. So we don't really start talking about margin and trade terms until we like the product, we trial the product. We do ask for a number of submissions that go to many people within the business. You know, I personally like to kind of build that buy-in across various functions within Cosbar. But once we kind of get past that and we feel that, hey, the brand has the infrastructure to be successful in many of the things we just talked about, then we kind of get to those trade terms, right? So margin is most important. But within our T's and C's, terms and conditions, we do touch on testers and RTVs and all the economic things. Just again, it's better we have that transparency upfront and there are no surprises down the road because those things, again, if a brand hasn't been as thoughtful as they should be to a wholesale strategy, then those things can trip us up in a big way down the road.
1: Absolutely. So I know we're almost out of time, but I would love my last question for you is, I'd love to hear from you where you see Cosbar going. What does the future look like? Is it category expansion? Is it more stores? I know you said you're moving into 21 now. What's the next three years to 50 look like?
0: I I do think there's a ton of white space for Cosbar right now. I don't think it's a secret that department stores are a little bit in retreat and just those super regionals, Customers are changing their shopping habits to go more to high streets, main streets, mixed use lifestyle centers, as well as I think, you know, again, COVID accelerated this with hybrid work and people kind of getting away from the cores of cities and moving to, if you call it rural, you know, places like Aspen or Carmel, you know, Montecito, things of of that place, but whatever, places where people want to be and can be just because of how, covid has kind of changed the, the virtual work environment. You know, as well as luxury right now, if you're a luxury brand, there's not a lot of opportunities in wholesale, right? You know, I'd say department stores have kind of been the top of the food chain for a long time, but outside of that, not a lot of places to go if you're if you're very interested in maintaining kind of luxury positioning and luxury distribution. So in that regards, I think there's a huge amount of opportunity for cosbar. So yes, we just we're opening in Brooklyn. We're going to be in Cobble Hill on Atlantic and Court. It's going to be our 21st store and very, very excited about that opening. You know, so for us, we're at 21. I mean, I see Cosbar getting to, you know, 45, 50 stores in the US in terms of kind of pace of getting there, has got a whole bunch of other factors, which I won't go into. But I think that's kind of the long term vision while maintaining really good omni channel experience. But On the omni-channel side, to me, I view it more as like a full customer life life cycle, right? And having that seamless omni-channel experience, I don't see us as a retailer where we're going to be bringing people in top of funnel purely through digital. Yes, it happens. But to really kind of, I think, appreciate and understand the Cosbar ecosystem, it's more about that in-store experience. And again, to look, see, feel, touch... Education from an expert, the tyranny of choice that consumers have, the amount of information, misinformation, right? I think people are just kind of on overload and they want someone who has that knowledge that can then take what their needs and wants and concerns are and give them that regimen. And I and I don't think that can be done online uh, nearly to the way it can be done in store. And again, going back to the product, right? It's so sensorial, and what people are looking for, especially in makeup and fragrance and you know skincare and all of it. So that's kind of where we're going to remain true for the foreseeable future.
1: Well, Oliver, I really appreciate your time today. The insights, really understanding better the Cosbar model, the Cosbar thinking, but really just you in general and your wealth of knowledge that you bring. So thank you for the time today.
0: Jessica, thank you for having me. This was great.
1: Good luck on your opening. And I can't wait to see more stores in the area. So congratulations and have, a, have an amazing opening weekend. And if you would like to continue to buzz with me, head on over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.